Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with one of my usual hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian based in Frederick, Maryland. And our other usual host, Todd Pruitt, a PCA megachurch pastor from Harrisonburg, Virginia, can't be with us today. Uh, it's a little known uh, fact that he's actually the stunt body double for Drew Carey <laughs> on The Price is Right. And he was drafted in this morning to do a couple of risky stunts for Mr. Carey, so he can't make it this afternoon. But I'm sure that uh, oh, yeah. most of you will realize that the quality simply increases. <laughs> we might say that less is definitely going to be somewhat more today. We'll have so, a lot more space to fill in without Todd talking. We will. We will. And yeah. I am, I, I should actually as well note that I am in mourning today. Uh, mm. Neil Innes, one of the great heroes of my youth, the lyricist from Monty Python, member of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, uh, died last night. A devastating cultural moment for for British people of my generation. Very, very sad that he's gone. And I'm hoping that we will uh, go out today maybe to uh, the Canyons of Your Mind, one of the great Bonzo tracks from the late 60s. Sounds like a good tribute, Carl. He's a most excellent musician. So, Amy, uh, what are we going to talk about today in the absence of, uh, of our greatest team well, member? We are recording remotely today, and um, we thought that we would look back. We're, we're about to approach the new year here as we're recording today. So we thought we'd look back in the last year, 2019, um, maybe lessons we've learned uh, and good books that we've read. How's Sounds sound? excellent idea. Have you learned anything this year? No, but I knew everything already. So, okay. you know, what else is that? No, actually, I, uh, this year has been a very interesting one for me. It's been my first complete calendar year out of the, that kind of reformed evangelical world that I lived in, really, 24 hours a day, every day of my life for 16, 17 years when I taught at the seminary. Mm -hmm. It's been very interesting for me to be swimming once again in, in broader waters educationally. Yeah, uh, love teaching undergraduates. Uh, particularly enjoy teaching the the survey course. Really, the last three hundred years of, uh, of of the understanding of the human self, uh, which has helped fuel the completion of uh, my my longest ever book project, both in terms of time it's taken and in terms of the number of words I've written. And that's the uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self. Uh, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. I finally Where's finished that book, that book uh, and it should be coming out from Crossway around about beginning of next November, I think. So okay. this year was huge for me, both in terms of, of breaking out of that uh, world that I'd lived in for so long, but also in completing one of the, the biggest projects of my, my adult life, I suppose. Yeah, congratulations. Look forward to reading it. Well, great. So please buy a copy. And anybody else, <laughs> please buy copies. I need the royalties. <laughs> no, so yeah. And did you like this process of writing kind of the biggest book 
of your career and, and all the research involved in it and then putting it into manuscript form, did that feel a lot different from the other books that you've written? Yeah, I think one, it was a, a territory that I'd not worked in before. I'm really trained as a 16th, 17th century guy. That's mm -hmm. where I've, I've worked in terms of scholarship in the past. This was a much more diffuse project as well. When you're trying to my basic burden is to try to work out why people think the way they do today. My, my essential thesis is the sexual revolution and issues of sexual identity cannot be isolated from much broader intellectual, cultural, social changes. Well, that's a vast topic. And the biggest problem I had with this book was, was actually the structure. I got the material, okay. uh, but trying to work the material into a, a coherent narrative. I remember having uh, lunch with an old friend, Gordon Graham, professor of philosophy at, uh, it was actually Aberdeen where we met, but he was latterly at Princeton Theological Seminary, having lunch with Gordon in uh, 2018 and describing the project to him. And he simply shook his head and said, how on earth are you ever going to put all that together in a coherent whole? So that was the, the major problem. I had to leave a, a fair bit out in the end. Mm. Um, but I think uh, what I've got is, is now relatively coherent and takes the, the, the narrative of, of Western thinking about the self from Rousseau to Hugh Hefner and beyond. Okay. I'm just focused on what I would call uh, elite thinkers, but also mm -hmm. on those who've shaped the way we think as, mm -hmm. as ordinary individuals. And for example, Hugh Hefner, I think, is absolutely huge in the way that he makes uh, pornography uh, mainstream now you know, looking back at, at, at playboy playboy is pretty tame i think compared to the pornography that's available on any computer anywhere in the world today but there's no doubt in my mind that hefner is is central in making pornography something that it was ex it was respectable to indulge in mm. uh, in a way that had not been the case before and hearing you speak a little bit on the topic and some of your lectures you've given, um, I really like too how you go to the poets and how they have affected the way that we think. Yeah, I think uh, when William Hazlitt. Shaping culture. Yeah, when William Hazlitt, riffing off Aristotle, says man is a poetical animal, he's really pointing to the fact that, that we're not just brains on sticks, emotions mm -hmm. are powerful. Uh, factors in how we think, aesthetics, powerful factors in how we think. And so any account of, of the sexual revolution, any account of why transgenderism is now plausible has to take account of, of, of the world of art and has to take account of the world of pop culture as well. Mm -hmm. So it was yeah. a fun book from Big that element. perspective. I mean, was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, having, you know, beginning paid to spend a year at Princeton and read Wordsworth and William Blake, and kind of, <laughs> you know, that's a blast. I, I, I'm a that's very, cool. very fortunate man for, from that perspective. So uh, I mm -hmm. hope the book uh, proves helpful to people. But I, even if it doesn't, I had great fun writing it. <laughs> yeah, I know. So. It is interesting how much you learn through writing. That's oh, yeah. I really appreciate. Uh, you've been writing what I imagine will be a book that nobody will take offense at, <laughs> will pass without notice as soon as yeah. it hits the shelves. Yeah, there's a lot of learning when you're writing about something controversial, too. And the funny part is that that really wasn't my beginning aim. My beginning aim was to write about discipleship and lay people in the church and how I really have seen how the parachurch has taken discipleship out of the church. And so I was wanting to write something to kind of help the church see this and um, 
start discipling again in the church and, and um, investing in our lay people in that way so that they can disciple as well. And um, very quickly, I saw the roadblock between men and women in discipleship. We talk so much about men and women in leadership and ordination and all this debate between complementarianism and egalitarianism, but we really haven't talked a lot about male-female disciples. And I think that there's a lot of preconceived notions there. So I kind of addressed the roadblock a little bit and yeah, it's going to be controversial. And it's interesting because I've, I'm learning a lot about where people stand and, and how people communicate and how to take criticism. <laughs> and it's interesting because like just this week, once again, there's a thread going on on Facebook on whether Amy Bird is orthodox or not. <laughs> and I find it very interesting because I am confessional and we talk a lot on the show about being confessional. I see that we have the freedom within the bounds of our confessions to explore scripture and um, with that knowledge and those guardrails and to discover and to communicate and to disagree. And um, yet I find that that can be dangerous territory. <laughs> it seems to me that on the confessional front, there are an awful lot of people out there who are really fundamentalists who use the confessional word mm-hmm. because the confessions are very narrow and restricted in some ways on, on what they pronounce upon. Now there are implications mm-hmm. of those pronouncements, but one of the points of, of confessions is to be a consensus document that pulls people together and right. demarcates the vital from the non-essential. And I think that in, particularly in the polarized culture we're operating in at the moment, where increasingly it seems that, that he was not 100% with me has to be considered to be 100% against me. Right. That's a very, very tricky position to be in. And that's what makes true confessionalism very attractive because true confessionalism actually gives you a mechanism for right. kind of navigating that kind of polarization. The irony is that the, the language of confessionalism seems to be being appropriated by those who are really kind of like the old style fundamentalists. Right. And don't understand that confessionalism actually means that people who disagree on some sometimes quite important stuff can yet actually set those differences aside within the church and mm-hmm. have fellowship one with another without those things being a problem. So yeah. your experience is, is very interesting. I can't of say that I don't do Facebook, I don't do social media, mm-hmm. so I am not responsible. Uh, for that. I may have hired somebody to do that, you'll never know, but I'm not directly responsible yeah, for Some of them I do think might be plants, but probably not from you. <laughs> no, well, well, it's interesting that Todd's away when we're discussing this as well. He's made himself uh, helpfully absent at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing I'm learning this year too is, you know, I'm not a professor, or obviously I'm not a pastor or anything like that, or a, a professional theologian in the, any of those senses. So, you know, I, I depend on social media to to communicate my writing and to, to get the word out about it and to start conversations about it. But, you know, all of the arguing and the extreme tribalism, I know that word's used a lot, but it's just so apparent. I mean, I'm really trying to learn more about engagement on social media. Um, you know, I mainly try to stay out of a lot of that, but I, I want to, you know, be able to use it well and, and also to be able to handle things well when you see those things written about yourself. <laughs> My limited experience of social media, just reading it, seems to indicate, A, something I've noted for a long time, and that's that slander, slandering another Christian. 
mm-hmm. is the acceptable sin. I've been it on really the receiving is. end of that myself mm-hmm. repeatedly, not in the social media yeah. world, but repeatedly over the last three or four years in very unpleasant ways. Uh, and, and secondly, the whole idea of the New Testament, you know, where a kind word turns away wrath. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that there isn't a time to draw the sword. There isn't a time, if you like, to draw blood. But the whole idea of, uh, of a, a kind word turns away wrath and not responding in anger when somebody uh, slams you, that seems to have vanished from mm-hmm. the, the social media Christian world, which seems well, yeah. to, on the whole to be unremittingly unpleasant. It seems humorless, it seems self-important, and it seems slanderous by and large. Right. And, and even like kind of a, another layer to the question is, how are we best going to be persuasive even with our convictions? Okay, people have a lot of strong convictions. Obviously, you see that on social media, but um, they're not really persuading anyone except for maybe in their own tribes yeah. to, you know, kind of gather pitchforks or whatever. You could have the, the most right argument, but yeah. if you can't be persuasive, you know, what's it worth engaging there? Yeah. I don't know. And does it bring any glory to God? Absolutely, yeah. You know, does yeah. the way you behave bring glory to God? And I said, that's not to say there isn't a place for polemics. Heck, I've mm-hmm. indulged in a few myself during the, <clears throat> over the time, but it is to say that you know, polemics is not to be the default operating mode. Uh, secondly, mm-hmm. I just wonder about use of time as well. I mean, I have a full-time yeah, job. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I like to uh, be involved in the various rosters in my church. My wife and I like to open our house for hospitality. Right. I do the podcast. I write mm-hmm. a bit for first things. I don't have time to be tweeting or savaging the characters of people I've never met. Uh, <laughs> that really is, you know, I'm over 50. And maybe with a bit of luck, I've got 20 years of active mm-hmm. doing stuff left. I want it to be worthwhile stuff. Right. What are the best ways to, to communicate? Honest. Yeah. yeah. I, I fear, questions, I fear I that some people sacrifice the opportunity of influencing the people they can influence, i.e. those yes. who are in their church and in their circles, in attempts to influence people that they'll never influence, the people out there in the ether who don't really exist mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of the true personal interactions. So yeah. that's just a personal beef. Mm-hmm. I'm learning too more about confrontation and how to do that well um, when it does get more personal. Yeah. That's Well, I've area. seen you and Todd going backwards and forwards on Twitter. You're definitely, <laughs> definitely getting better at confronting Well, Todd is, you know, a whole different <laughs> level of learning with confrontation. <laughs> but, I was sitting, sitting in my lounge the other day after Christmas. Suddenly my wife starts to read me these sort of scare stories about, you know, gay socialists about to take over the world. And where's this come <laughs> from? And I said to her, you're reading Todd Pruitt's Twitter feed. Right? <laughs> she said, yes, I have been looking at it again. So. Yeah, you can get really scared reading, reading yeah. Todd's Twitter feed. I yeah. know. I need to send him that piece from the Wall Street Journal on Saturday about, you know, put the negativity behind you in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Todd, you won't be out there listening, but if you were, we do love you really. So. And what about books, Amy? Read any good yeah. books in well, 2019? We've done some great books this year on the podcast, I think. Um, in some of the interviews we've done and just talking, Trier's Introduction to Evangelical yeah. Theology was one of my favorite books this year. Yeah. So despite just, the knees on the cover. The, the, despite, the, yeah, that. The weird and I think physiology of the characters. I had a good t- I was able to meet him in person at ETS and give him my pushback about the knees. So um, he took, duly took note on that. And, was um, he suitably repentant? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't see it until then, but then he, oh. he totally saw <laughs> what uh, I was talking about. Sign of idolatry, seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear, you know. It's, uh, yes, 
I don't know. I don't think we've talked about on the podcast, um, Craig Carter's interpreting scripture with the great tradition. Have we, we did a whole podcast on that. We interviewed him. We on did. That. We, we did. did. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Do not take that out, Mark. We need that in. Okay. People need to know what I'm working with here. I'm looking through my book pile right now. Okay. This Did we do one on the Bible at any point? Is this book the Bible? Uh, have, we, have we touched on that? <laughs> Be quiet. Okay, here's one. Um, the Mosaic of Atonement by Joshua McNall. Have you oh, heard I've of this I've not seen one? that. I like this one because he kind of talks about the different um, theories of atonement, but he puts them together. So he talks about, um, and he uses like body parts. So it's like uh, the feet are the recapitulation, Adam to Christ atonement theory and then the heart is the penal substitution and the head is christus victor and uh hands is moral influence we've done a lot of interviews this year well, I, I think the mortification of spin is like the 60s if you remember it you weren't really there That's the, uh... <laughs> we need to put that up on the a website that's yes. awesome i love that okay well i want to move past theology for a minute i'm looking through all of these Oh, I also appreciated resourcing theological anthropology by Mark Cortez. But over my Christmas break, I read uh, Amy Montravati's second volume to her Chronicles of oh. Mom series. Look how fat this book is. Yeah. Was, was I a character in it at all this time? No, you oh, were not. So it's not, it's not very so it's good a, then. It's an improvement from volume one. <laughs> Um, and this one's called The Forsaken Monarch, The Chronicle of Maud. So this is about Empress Matilda from the 1100s. She was empress of the Holy Roman Empire, queen of Germany, queen of Italy, and she's the sole legitimate heir to the English throne. So it's like a, a historical fiction wow. novel. And I'm telling you, so this thing is 657 pages or something like that. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is really long. But it was a page turner. I read it so fast. I really appreciate her writing. I could, wow. the character development was so good. I could identify with it, it's humorous. Um, the history's really good, and you could keep track with it all, um, with all the different. There's so many Matildas and Henrys and mm. Williams. So um, yeah, I learned a lot, and I, I I found it very entertaining. So I've read some other novels this year too. Um, some that aren't as uh, you know. I've read some that are more like contemporary, maybe pop uh, novel reading, which I've really enjoyed. Ann Patchett this year as a new author for me. Any Amish uh, romances? Not this year. No, not this year. <laughs> what about you? I've got more around here, but I'm... I, well, I got a couple of things. I think um, it's a couple of years old now, but I only came across it this year. Uh, Douglas Farrow, he's a conservative Roman Catholic, Canadian Roman Catholic theologian. His book, Theological Negotiations, it's a, co a collection of essays, sort of loosely connected essays. Um, I've not read them all, but the... the uh, Essay on Autonomy, chapter seven of this book, is a superb analysis of where modern selfhood and the, and the cult of, of modern autonomy comes from. So one of the books I've most enjoyed in the last month or two, Doug Farrow's Theological Negotiations. He wrote one of the, the sharpest books on gay marriage, actually. It's a, it's a couple of years old now. In fact, it's over 10 years old because it was written when Canada legitimated gay marriage way back in 2008, 2009, something like that. Great title, Nation of Bastards. Uh, oh, I man. love the title of this book. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's three or four essays. And, you know, he's using bastard in the technical sense. Fatherless okay. kids. And I figured how as much, yeah. The modern philosophy of marriage leads to 
a vast number of fatherless kids and, and really corrodes the relationship between parents and children. So Doug Farrow has been my discovery of the year. I'm currently reading Brian Daly's God Visible, which is uh, a book on early church Christology. Uh, and his argument there is that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be, I say, mesmerized by the Chalcedonian formula, that there's far richer aspects to early church Christology than just that which, which was adopted at Chalcedon in 451, which didn't even end the story. There were, there, were, there were Christological developments after that. I would say it's one of the clearest, but also most accessible scholarly treatments of doctrine of Christ in the early church I've come across. Uh, Mike yeah. Allen recommended it to me, uh, mm -hmm. a friend of been on this program you remember him amy mike allen did he's been on the program mike? he's written yeah. a few books we even i think called we even him called accident. him by accident once. we did we did <laughs> he recommended it to me and on the the, the sort of the non-christian front i've gone mm -hmm. for uh actually reading a couple of fun books gone back to read yeah. a bit of john buchan i read his john mcnab which uh -huh. is the story of three toffs who basically decide to become poachers for a summer to to spice up their lives and also his book, Which Wood, which as in W-I-T-C-H, which is a historical wow. novel set in the covenanting times of the 1640s in Scotland. I'm loving and historical novels. The interesting thing about this book is it's the story of this minister who's faced with a problem that we now know is actually a really true problem in Scotland in the 17th century. And that's that a lot of his parishioners are engaging in, in witchcraft or in folk religion, even while they're Presbyterians. Hmm. So it's a fascinating book that I think... As long as it's not yoga. It's not yoga. No, no, he didn't okay. have to face that. I think it was just devil worship at its worst. Okay. Um, but it's a very interesting take, particularly today when we, we realize now that Secular people aren't that secular, that actually there yeah. are dimensions to human existence that are hard to suppress. So point. it's a very, even though it was written in, I think, the 1920s, early 1930s, it's a very contemporary novel for its take on, on how the line between formal religion and, and folk religion is often very, very blurred. Particularly useful in a year where Donald Trump's standing for re-election, I think, where yeah. on both sides of the line we'll see Christianity being articulated in a way that has as much to do with the culture in which we live as it does with the, uh, Absolutely. the teachings of the Bible itself. It's going to be an interesting year for Christians yeah. with, with the election coming up. I might just get off social media for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote a piece uh, for First Things recently that I thought was a very middle-of-the-road piece on Trump. Mm. And, you uh, got wrong. Well, I got hammered both by the left <clears throat> and by the right, those mm -hmm. who thought that it was uh, a violently pro-Trump piece and those who thought it was a violently anti-Trump piece, which made me think I'd probably got it just about right. If I yeah. alienate the extremes on both sides, I'm probably somewhere in the, in the safe or the unsafe safe zone. Yeah, that's like when I was, um, I was speaking for an Anglican diocese retreat for the bishops and priests, and they wanted me to talk about men and women in the church. And it was four different talks. And the ACNA has some different points of view on whether or not women can be ordained. It's a big issue for them. It's a yeah. huge issue. And even within this diocese, which was much more complementarian, there were some ordained women in it because, you know, they're coming out of the Episcopalian church. And so I really felt like 
you know, my view coming in, I was talking more about lay people than ordination. And so it was talking about discipleship in the church. But, you know, I kind of started off with a semi joke that, um, you know, usually when a speaker comes to talk about men and women in the church, there's going to be some people really happy with what they say. And then some people really angry with what they say. And I was just, you know, my goal was to make everybody angry. <laughs> so <laughs> that way, <laughs> that way, uh, no one's victorious. But yeah, I mean, I think that when you try to speak with more balance, you get surprised. The enemies you make almost, I don't, it's not always enemies, but you it, know, the, it, it kind of, and then you kind of get surprised too at some of the friends you make as it's, well. It's not a balanced age. Mm-hmm. Anybody trying to, I mean, we see this even in the, the changes within, uh, you know, the OPC. If you look at the OPC uh, statement on women in ministry mm-hmm. from way back in the 1980s, I think there are elements within the OPC that would now excoriate that as a horribly liberal piece of work. Right, uh, right. Know. Somebody who said recently said, oh, these people that, you know, the guy, people like you and Amy are trying to change the denomination. And I'm thinking, well, no, in order to change the denomination, we'd have to be doing something different to that which was done in the 1980s. It's not right. the it's not the middle of the road people who change the denomination. It's the it's the people on either wing. I think whether it's the left of the PCA or the right of the OPC, that's what we mm-hmm. we're sort of witnessing at this time. We are. So, so what do you think, you know, are going to be some of the bigger challenges for the reformed denominations in this coming year? Uh, I hesitate to to be too specific. You know, one one fears there are more abuse scandals to come. Yeah. simply on the grounds that we seem only just to be beginning to have these things yeah. emerge in, in reformed and evangelical circles. British evangelicalism is being torn apart even as we speak today right. because of things that have been historically covered up in, in Anglican evangelicalism. So I fear there's more bad news on that front to come. I think in the broader culture, we're going to see more polarization before we see less. I think that the the election campaign in the United States will be as divisive as the past four, six, eight, how far you want to go back. But I think it will be yet more radical division uh, within society that's taking place. Um, Obviously, I think my book is going to completely transform the landscape of of evangelical. (laughs) And uh, so that's a good thing. I think we'll all be much wiser once we've read what I have to say on these issues. Okay, okay. (laughs) No, it's uh, joking aside, I think that these issues, the issues of sexuality, the issues of social justice, uh, these things are going to continue to tear our world apart. And I think any attempt, like I, I attempt to in my book, any attempt to historicize and contextualize these issues will not be met with praise by either side in the debate. I think that we, we have difficult times ahead on the contentious issues. Uh, my hope would be that sometime in the near future, the church at least can refocus on the gospel. I know. Like I was going to ask you, because one thing I appreciate about my church is that we have people with different political views mm. in our church. It's not all you know, one tribe, per se, even though obviously we're all pro-life. And you know, when it comes to you know, certain Christian moral issues, we you know, hold a strong stance there. But then there's division over which issues you're going to vote on yeah. um, and which issues are more important at this time with certain leaders and different things like that. And, um, you know, definitely different stances on other social issues and economics and, and stuff like that. So I appreciate that because I feel like I've really been sharpened 
a lot. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and I, you know, I hope that that can continue. I think it would be helpful if Christians could stop parading their party political commitments in public not mm -hmm. saying they shouldn't be party political but i always remember my dad my whenever my dad was leaving the voting booth in the uk all these people outside these exit polls and how did you vote and my dad's response was always mind your own business there's a reason why it's a secret ballot <laughs> now i'm pretty sure my dad voted conservative with one exception throughout his entire adult life mm -hmm. but i grew up very much in a in, at a time in a culture in a family where yeah, political views were important, but how you voted was a private matter. And mm. I didn't know how my neighbors voted. I didn't really, I sort of guessed how my parents voted by and large. I think that a little bit of modesty and, and, and privacy on these things might actually help defuse some of the tension. Maybe, because we've really, you know, social media has really, I think, amped up how public yeah. we are about those things as well. It used to be that you know, the generations before us didn't talk so much about religion or politics. Yeah, yeah. And, and now um, we are doing that a lot, but now we're not doing it well. So maybe yeah. there's a way that we can do it well, and some things are kept more private and other things are worth debating, you know, more publicly. I don't know. We need to find the balance. Should I wrap things up now? <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> Well, we could call Craig Carter well, and see if he'll come in and wrap it up for us. You know who he is? Let's get Craig to do it. He's written a really a good book. Have we you talked to him sometime. before? <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm out of it today. Sorry. Hopefully, I'll be smarter in 2020. Hey, I'm drinking real coffee these days. It's got a coffee machine. Do you know they make these things with timers? No, so you can actually no. set a time for it to come on? So I've not no yet I've not yet successfully managed to get it to do it on time because I keep putting the time in wrong. But in theory... <laughs> In theory, I could have my coffee done at a particular time. I'm amazed what's out there. With a there. better programmer. So it's you're incredible. using real coffee beans now? Yeah, I'm even grinding them. I am I, so I, proud I went to the you. local shop and I was chatting and the girl said, what sort of, what would you like? And I said, I have not got a clue. Like, <laughs> idiot. Tell me what you would recommend. And, um, so Katrina, uh, I, I always make tea for her. I know she drinks tea a lot. Yeah. Does she drink coffee? No, no. Do you want to wrap it up or you want me to wrap it up? Oh, why don't I wrap it up as, uh, okay. well, as I opened, as I started, so I'll finish. Uh, well, that's uh, all we have for you today. We hope that uh, insights into 2019 and our predictions for 2020, well, we actually hope that our predictions for 2020 don't come true as they were basically bad ones. <laughs> but we hope that our reflections on 2019 have been helpful. Uh, do look up the books we've recommended. Uh, we don't get any commission from those books, but I would say uh, they're extremely uh, helpful. Uh, and do visit our website. Now, we've had somebody asking uh, that when we say, if you feel led to make a donation, does that indicate some kind of commitment to uh, a mystical form of guidance? Absolutely not. It's just that as an Englishman, I find it awkward to say, give us your cash. <laughs> so I try to defuse it by saying, if you feel led, please make a donation. But for that, please read, give us your cash. You'll find <laughs> how to do that on our website. Uh, we will uh, speak to you next week. This is the B side of our single sports fans. Hope it makes you sick. I don't really mean that. Honestly, we're very nice chaps, really. In the canyons of your mind I will wander through your brain 
to the ventricles of your heart, my dear. I'm in love with you again. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I found myself, um, as I was reading through Scripture, thinking, you know, God has a purpose for everything that happens to me and to everyone else. And what if the purpose is something much greater than just conquering or getting past this? Um, What if I'm supposed to be learning something through it? That interview is next time. Join us then. From these streets, very close to the cavern Rutland, came the fabulous Rutland sound, created by the prefab four Dirk, Nasty, Stig and Barry, who created a musical legend that will last a lunchtime. Ouch, you're breaking my heart. Ouch, I'm falling apart.